0: super pleased today to welcome to our podcast Brett Belchick who is the president and CEO of Maple. Maple is one of our primary partners that actually helps our members access uh, the healthcare system quickly and efficiently. Uh, Brett and I actually met about five years ago when we were both initiating our health companies Advoca Health and Maple and uh, again he is a major partner Maple is a major partner of ours for all of our members. We talk uh, about his background and why he started Maple. We talk about some of the issues that Maple is helping to solve. First of all, personally how it's helping people uh, get quick access to the the medical services they require and also how his service is helping to uh, reduce bottlenecks in the medical system that exists today. We talk about Maple's growth and the fact that they're helping about 3 million Canadians today uh, we get into the future of healthcare and where he sees the future of healthcare uh, going. We have a good discussion around that and personalized medicine. Uh, Brett shares how the services uh, that Maple provides are helping our members on a daily basis. And then, lastly, we finish. I put him on the spot and uh, ask him some questions around his own personal health and things he's doing uh, to be healthy on a daily basis. So, sit back and please enjoy today's show. Good. Um, so, Brett, I'd like to officially welcome you to the N2L uh, podcast. Great to have you here today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. Where, uh, for our audience, if you wouldn't mind just sharing, where are you joining us from? Uh, during COVID, I know we've all had uh, alternative working arrangements, but where are you joining us from today?
1: I am joining you from uh, my home office, which is in uh, the basement of my house, which is uh, in midtown Toronto. Oh, okay, super
0: good. And for our audience, um, Brett and I actually had the opportunity to, to meet each other, I, I'm going to say four or five years ago, I know time, especially during COVID, we seem to have lost a couple of years here, but um, Brett and I had the opportunity to meet when we were both going down the path of developing and, and starting our health, uh, health companies. So, uh, yeah, which was, I, I'm, again, I'm guessing whether that was four or five years ago, it might have even been longer. Who knows?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it seems like forever ago. And it also feels like yesterday at the same time. Uh, the, the way that I know that it was a long time ago is that we met in person and we didn't have masks and we didn't worry about getting sick from <laughs> each other. So I, I, I know it was at least a few years back.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'd also like to welcome uh, you, you and, and uh, in particular, Maple as a partner of AdvocA Health. And uh, we're going to get into that a little later in terms of the services you provide. But we're so pleased to have you as a partner. And we're getting amazing, outstanding feedback from all of our members that are using your services, you know, every minute of every day.
1: So thank you for that. And, and welcome to uh, the Advoka, uh partnership as well. it's our pleasure. And and it's great to, after all these years, actually finally be a partner with AdvocA. I know we spoke about it many years back, but it's a a real privilege to actually finally uh, be working directly with you. And it's fantastic to be able to provide great service to your members. And I'm so happy to hear that the feedback so far has been positive. And certainly that's something that we hope to continue in the years to come.
0: Yeah, awesome. Perfect. So for our listeners, uh, Brett, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just give a uh, start off with a little background uh, back story in terms of, uh, you know, your your family, your career or anything you'd like to share to, to kind of bring us up more to the maple days would be great.
1: Yeah, well, I'll try to keep it somewhat abbreviated. I, I feel like it, we could be here a long time if I told you the whole the whole uh, family and 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 career story. But uh, my background: um, I grew up in Toronto. Was actually born uh, in South Africa, but didn't uh, live there for very long. Moved here as as a baby. So I spent m- most of my life um, in the Toronto area and originally trained to be a physician. And um, I have a family that's your and a couple of cousins that are physicians. And and that heavily influenced me to want to go into healthcare and to practice medicine. And I I had the unusual experience of, as I got to the end of medical school, uh, for me, the number one reason that i had actually gone into medical school was that I'd been really interested in becoming a surgeon. That was my number one thing that I wanted to do in medicine. And I had this unusual experience is that when I went to medical school, within a couple of years of being in medical school, I started to realize that I actually didn't like surgery at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I would go into the operating room, I would be part of operations, and, and to be honest, I would find them very repetitive and there wasn't a lot of creative thinking involved, which makes a lot of sense because when your surgeon is operating on you, you really don't want them to be creative. You want them to be doing the same thing very perfectly every single time. But I'm the kind of person that I like to be a bit creative in what I do. And so I came to the end of medical school and had this revelation that I didn't really know that I still wanted to be a physician uh, because my entire reason for going into it had been to be a surgeon and I'd realized I didn't want to do that. So I started to look at other opportunities And ended up getting recruited by a company called McKinsey and Company, which is a global management consulting firm, and got a job uh, with them out of their Toronto office. And ended up taking that job and working all over the world. Uh, They have offices in almost every country in the world, in every major city. And so I I worked on projects around the world in a variety of different industries and had an amazing time uh, doing management consulting and learned. An incredible amount about business uh, and developed an unbelievable network, uh, met amazing people uh, that I work with, just some of the brightest people that I've ever come across. But at the end of a few years of management consulting, um, what I realized is that I actually do like being a little bit more hands-on. So if, for anybody that's been a management consultant, what you quickly discover is that you drop into a company, you give a lot of advice, and then you walk away. And you don't really ever tend to feel either the pain of failure or the, the real joy of success and i like to feel both i obviously prefer the the joy of success over the pain of failure but i feel like having that pain of failure actually inspires more success there's a lot of great learnings when you don't succeed in something so um came back actually finished my residency uh in in medicine to actually practice uh emergency medicine and then came back after working for mckinsey and worked in the emergency room in the toronto area and Variety of hospitals for quite a number of years, and that is actually that frontline healthcare system. Um, and I can get into this story later, but that working on that, that the front lines of the healthcare system delivering care w- was a huge amount of what influenced all of what led to the f- the forming of Maple. Yeah. So you,
0: um, and how long did you were you did you work on the front lines in the emerge?
1: So I finished my residency in two thousand four, and we started Maple in two thousand fifteen, and I, I actually didn't stop working on the front lines even when we started Maple. So I'd been working in the emergency room for about 11 years when we started the company. And I, can, I stayed working actually full-time in the emergency room even for the first few years um, after we started Maple. And the interesting thing about practicing emergency medicine is it's all shift-based work. So you don't necessarily work your typical nine to five shift. So you can have shifts that are in the evening, on the weekend, overnight. And so in order to make Maple a reality when we started the business, What I was doing is Maple was, was at least in terms of getting the business started, was very much a start in the morning and finish at the end of the day kind of job. And so what I would end up doing is I would go to Maple, wherever our office was at the time, um, work Maple-related activities every day, be it trying to raise funds, trying to help build the platform, trying to recruit doctors and partners, etc., And then I would typically have either an evening or a weekend emergency room shift. Uh, Maple had no money in the early days. We had no funding. We had no investors. We had, we had nothing that could pay the bills. So the only way that I could make it work was to actually be pretty much working around the clock, seven days a week for the first few years when we started the business. Wow. Amazing.
0: And let me ask you, did you enjoy the emergency room? Did you enjoy that work?
1: You know, it's a mixed bag. Um, I would say when I started the the job, I loved it. but there were, and and I loved the actual patient care. I loved when there were patients that had really significant issues um, that they were dealing with that I was able to make a difference with. So so you know, if somebody came in in a cardiac arrest and I was able to resuscitate them, or if I needed to reset a broken bone or fix a dislocated shoulder or sew so closed a wound, all of these things were really satisfying, and I and I really enjoyed that. I I could actually feel the impact of of what I was doing. And I I felt that I was making somebody's day better or somebody's life better. Um, But what I didn't enjoy, excuse me, but what I didn't enjoy was that over time, what I found was that the experience of providing healthcare in the emergency room was very much getting drowned in the difficulties of operating within our healthcare system. So we were perpetually understaffed. We never had enough nurses. We didn't have enough space. We didn't have enough supplies. Um, the patients were overwhelming us in terms of the volume of patients that would come in the door. So it didn't matter how much harder we worked or how much more efficient we got. There was always another wave of patients coming in the door that would eat up any efficiencies that we gained. And what we found is that the more time that I worked in the emergency room with every year that went by, it was becoming a more and more difficult job to actually deliver high quality care that I felt good about. So. I would be seeing patients by the time we started maple patients that were routinely waiting six hours to see me for really minor things and i would be seeing patients that were very angry because sitting in a waiting room for six hours was was never ever a good thing and often i would see patients who started out with things that might not have been so bad had i actually been able to see them when they first arrived but by the time they got to me their condition had deteriorated and then it became a much more emergent thing to deal with and so having to feel like I was going to war every single day. Um, It was a battle where we just, we did not have the resources to actually deal with the problems that we were being faced with. It was mentally and physically exhausting. And Mm -hmm. what I would say was the struggle that I had as I, you know, moved through the years and as we started Maple was actually coming to figure out what is the way that I can continue to feel good and continue to feel that I'm helping people without that breakdown that I knew was going to come if I kept providing care on the front lines with all of those limitations of resources. Yeah yeah
0: And one, one thing that keeps coming cl-
1: uh, through loud and clear
0: from from our discussion so far is y- you're, you're about helping people right you probably don't even know this but you've probably said that four or five times already that that's really what you know drives you is to help people on a daily basis right So uh, you know congratulations on that that's that's awesome. Um, let me ask you, um, when did the light go on in terms of Maple or what was your initial you know, thought process in starting Maple?
1: So the light really started to turn on for me around the year 2014. And for me, it had been a slow process. Um, it was all the frustration that had built up over many years where I had seen these huge wait times in the emergency room. I had seen the fact that at least half the people that I was treating when they eventually got to me after such a long period of waiting, their, their issues were very minor. Uh, they were things that I could deal with in three to five minutes very easily. And I didn't really find that for many of those patients, I was needing to do a procedure or anything that was hands-on. It was, it was generally quite transactional care. And I had this realization that most of these people, when I would speak to them and ask them, why are you here? You know, why did you wait six hours for something that clearly was not major? Um, there's this common misconception out there that people are abusing the system. They're coming in when they don't have an emergency. And even in the emergency room, I think a lot of people believe that. But the reality is most of these people were coming in because they had nowhere else to go. They, they either didn't have a family doctor at all, or if they did have a family doctor, many of them, their family doctors had no appointments for weeks. And if you're out of medication, if you have a minor injury, if you have a UTI, you can't wait weeks to get those things dealt with. You need to have them dealt with today. So I was experiencing all of that for many years. And what I was noticing at the same time was that as our technology was getting more advanced, so text messaging was getting better, FaceTime was getting better, more and more of my friends and family members were contacting me when they had medical problems uh, by text message and by FaceTime. And what I was noticing was that they didn't want to wait in the waiting rooms and I was very easily able to fix their concerns. So for the most part, my friends had messaged me with a medical problem. I could, within a few minutes, text them back. We could fix the issue with a few back and forth texts, sometimes with a FaceTime video. And my friends were really happy and I would speak to them after and they would always tell me, you got the diagnosis right and it fixed the problem. And thank you so much. You saved me from six hours in the hospital. And that was great. And it hit me that this kind of care actually worked, that I was really able to make a big difference without ever laying a hand on anybody. I was able to get the diagnoses right. I was able to save them all that waiting. But the other thing that really hit me was how unfair this was. So how unfair was it that here in Canada, if you had the right friend or family member that was a physician, you had access to this this form of virtual care where you could text people and have FaceTime videos. But for everybody else, the only option was six hours in a waiting room. And, And I thought that is not fair. And we really, really should see if there's a way to level the playing field. And I had this idea around 2014, late in that year, to say, could we actually build a platform that would give everybody the same feeling as if they had a physician that was available to them by text or by video? And Speaking to my colleagues, I would ask my colleagues, are you having the same experience? Would you do more of that? And all my colleagues said, yeah, I do it for all my friends and family members. And I would absolutely do more of that. And I would ask them, you know, would you staff a service like this? If I I actually put up a platform where you could get requests and get paid for it to do this, would you do it? And they all said, yeah, I would love it. I could love to work from home or love to work from the cottage or wherever else I go. And so from all of that, um, that was where the inspiration was born. And obviously there was a lot of due diligence that that followed up on that to figure out, you know, is this even legal in Canada? Um, Are people going to be willing to pay for it because it wasn't covered by the government and a whole number of other factors? But really, once we came through that, it was very clear that this was something that everybody would benefit from having a service like this available and physicians themselves would love providing this kind of care.
0: Yeah, so two things. I mean, A, the customer, which is the consumer, uh, is would be super happy with that type of service, which you're providing today. And and the docs and uh, the medical professionals that are providing the service, they're loving it as well, right? So, you know, the way I see it quite, you know, I'm, I'm making this much simpler than it is, is you're br- basically bringing the bridge um, to, to both those parties so that people can get better care. And, and both of them are, are better off because of it.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And and honestly, the way that we like to think about it is that both of those groups are both our customers. We need to make the patients happy and we need to make the healthcare providers happy. And so we provide exceptional service to both groups of of people. And, And that's really critical because in any relationship, if you don't have both parties that are happy, that relationship is not sustainable. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well put.
0: Um, let me ask you. So when you first started, I mean, maybe you can go back and just share, like, was it just you? Was it a, did you get a few docs? Um, like how, you know, did you yeah. develop the technology first and then add, add the, the docs or, you know, what was, yeah. what, what was the genesis of it?
1: So, so when we first started, um, I have two co-founders who, who are still with us today. So, so my one co-founder is Stuart Starr. He's our chief technology officer. Uh, my other co-founder is Roxana Zayman. She's our chief operating officer. And so when we first got started and I had this idea, Stu, who is our chief technology officer, he, he was a friend of mine for about 15 years or so at that point in time. I knew him quite well. And he was always the technology guy in my life that was the go-to technology guy. He, he was a coder. He built a bunch of websites. He built a bunch of apps. Um, he had built um, actually quite highly functioning apps for a couple of businesses that had done very well. And so anytime I had an idea like this, I would always approach Stu and say, Stu, is, is this something that we could actually build the technology for? So that was the first thing that I did um, after doing some very preliminary research to, to see if the business would be viable from a legal and regulatory perspective. And so I approached Stu and Stu said, I'm in. I love the idea. If you want to partner, I, I will be happy to work with you and help you to build this. And, and for me, that was a really important thing because I as much as I've learned a lot about technology over the years, I'm not a technology person, and I, I knew so many stories of entrepreneurs and even physicians who had tried to start technology businesses where they had hired out a third party contractor to build the technology and things have gone very wrong by doing that. So for us and for me, it was really important that we built our technology in house, we had the technology expertise as part of our founding team and that we didn't have this massive upfront cost of having to build tech uh, in terms of hiring developers to get started that we had somebody that could actually build the basics of the platform. Um, Very shortly after that, we had Roxana join us and we realized as we were going through some of the motions of getting the business pulled together that we needed somebody who could do a lot of the business planning and start to set up the business to, to make it operational. So as we thought about the fact that we would need a marketing department and we would need a finance department and an HR department and all these things that go into a business eventually, Neither Stu nor I felt that we knew how to do that, but Roxana had that background from some of her previous employment. So we brought her on board. And the first thing we did actually, as we uh, came to market is we we built the technology up to about 75% of a prototype that we could actually show to potential investors. And what we did is we used that prototype to bring in the first round of investors that were going to fund uh, the building of that prototype to actually move it to becoming the real platform. And one of the things that we thought about uh, at that point in time when we were going for investors was that there's a real chicken and egg in this business in that um, you can't get start advertising to patients and bring patients on board unless you have doctors and you're not going to get doctors that are going to commit to any amount of time providing care on the platform unless you have patients and the way that we solved for that chicken and egg is our our entire first group of investors for that very first friends and family round of investment were all physician colleagues of mine. So I went out to a bunch of physicians that I knew and and I told them about Maple and how incredible it was going to be. And I showed them our, our prototype platform. And I said that, this was an investment opportunity that people were fighting over but that they were going to get preferential access to the investment opportunity but the only way that i was going to allow them to invest was if they committed to actually staff the platform when they came on board and so i got a bunch of doctors who seemed really excited and made the commitment that that in exchange for them investing not only would they get their shares but they would also uh staff the platform in 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 exchange for that and so We got the money. We got that lineup of doctors, and then from there, we were able to use those funds to actually complete the building of the platform. And then the rest is history because we had actually broken that chicken and and egg, and we actually had the provider network. We were able to market to get our first customers, and then we were able to get bigger and bigger and and snowball from there. And there's a lot, a a lot of funding rounds and a lot of steps between then and now. But I think for us, really, the the critical piece to get it started was to recognize that this was a two-sided market with both patients and physicians. And if we didn't somehow crack that chicken and egg of the two-sided market by getting one of those parties on, even with no availability of the other side, that things were not going to work out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's genius that you you brought the docs on as investors. Yeah, yeah hats off to you with that because that otherwise you're right. How how would it work? You know how how do you even get started? So yeah, congrats on that. What um, were there barriers to entry from the medical system? In other words, you know, as you know, the, the traditional model is you go to a or you go to a walk-in clinic or you go see your family doc for any health issue and all of a sudden now you're changing that paradigm so that you're going to access a doc over your phone. So were there barriers to entry?
1: Absolutely. I, you know, luckily, at least in the initial days, there, there weren't really very many heavy regulatory or legal barriers. It, most of the, the provinces in Canada had what were called telemedicine regulations that regulated the provision of remote care. And most of those were actually quite lenient at the time that we started. However, the the thing that we really had to battle was the perception issue because while it wasn't technically uh, illegal or against the regulations, what we found is that most of the medical profession had never provided this kind of care and they had no training in this kind of care. So most of the medical profession was very, very nervous about jumping onto an app like this and providing this kind of care. They they didn't feel that they knew how to do it. They didn't know that this was actually allowed, even though we, we would show them the policies. So we would have to put a lot of work into educating the providers as to this is how virtual care is provided. This is how it's done in other parts of the world. Here's the regulations that show that you can do it. And many of them. Didn't take us at our word. They had to call their local college of physicians or call the CMPA, which is their malpractice body, to make sure that it was okay and that they were insured if they practiced like this. So there was a lot of, a lot of distrust in the early days that we had to overcome, and, and luckily we were able to overcome most of that. And on the patient side as well, um, I, I can tell you, in the early days, we were inundated with potential patients who would say to us that what we what we were doing must be illegal. It must be against the law to see it for a doctor to see a patient when they're not in the same room and you know the amount of conversations that we would have to have to counteract those false ideas or those false uh perceptions of what the regulations were i I, I, there were literally dozens and dozens of these and it was an ongoing uh i think ongoing feature of our growth in the first couple of years now what we've seen over time is that that's dramatically changed of course and and particularly as a result of the pandemic so the pandemic i think was the factor that more than anything else took what we did, which was something that was starting to gain awareness and starting to gain legitimacy. I think going into the pandemic, we were getting less and less of those questions. There were fewer and fewer physicians that said virtual care. I don't know if it's allowed fewer and fewer patients, but there were still a fair amount. But when you look at the start of the pandemic, where in April of 2020, 70% of all healthcare conducted in Canada was done virtually. At that point in time, after that, there were no more questions. We've never had a question since then about the legality of what we do. There's no doctors that doubt it's legal. There's no patients that doubt it's legal. Um, there is always some strain between us and the traditional healthcare system. And part of it, I think, is is in natural tension because I think that what we do is we, we provide healthcare in a very different way than the traditional healthcare system. And, and what we do, I think, uses resources in a very different way from the traditional healthcare system. And what we find is that in some respects, the traditional healthcare system can feel threatened by what we do. Um, There are family practices where they worry, could they lose patients to a service like us because the patients no longer feel they need uh, to have a family doctor. And similarly, there's hospitals that worry, could we be stripping patients away from them and so on and so forth. So there is an ongoing tension in some places between us and parts of the traditional healthcare system. And I think that that's normal. I think anytime there's innovation, there is going to be that that feeling of threat and that feeling of tension. But what I do find is that over time, um, those kinds of concerns have largely diminished. I I think what we've started to see more and more is a realization that virtual care has a very real place in the healthcare system and really does act to take strain off the healthcare system and create better outcomes for patients and also allow providers to use their time more effectively. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it's
0: interesting, you mentioned the pandemic, because I know, well, you know, prior to the pandemic, and that's, which is two years ago, uh, and a few months, right? Um, we would go to into and talk to individuals and talk to corporations about virtual health, and they'd go and most would say, really, you can actually talk to a doctor on your phone and get a prescription and get treatment oh "Yeah, that exists. Whereas now it's, it's fairly common, right? Um, yeah. And, and it's accepted. And I think COVID, you know, during COVID, unless you had to, nobody wanted to go near a hospital, a walk-in clinic, you know, stay away from any medical facilities. So for sure yeah. it's become more, more commonplace. So, yeah. um, so a uh, question for you, just for our listeners that aren't aware of virtual health or maybe limited, uh, limited usage in the past, how does Maple help people like uh, um, just share, you know, what, what Maple does for, for their customers? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so so Maple has a variety of services that are available on the platform Um, the the most commonly accessed service that that most people are logging on to is we have a 24 seven general practitioner service. And that's a service that's available either by our mobile application so you can download our mobile app and go in and, and, and access the service or you can do it on the web so you can do it on a computer or on your mobile phone using any browser. And what the service allows you to do is click a button, uh, similar to what you do in an Uber app where you request the first available car, but click a button to request the first available GP and enter in a few details of what your issue is that you're requesting uh, help with. And the service is available on a 24/7 basis across Canada. And once you've submitted your request, that request goes out to our pool of doctors uh, across the country. And we've got almost 2000 doctors across the country right now. And in a matter of minutes, you get paired up with a general practitioner who will pick up your visit, who will then see you by a combination of secure messaging, audio chat, video chat. Uh, Within that visit, they're able to uh, order prescriptions for you. They can order laboratory testing if you need blood tests done. They can order an X-ray or an ultrasound if you need other testing done. Uh, For some of our patients, they're able to make specialist referrals. So it really is everything that you would do in a physical doctor's visit minus the actual physical touch. It really is a full-featured medical service. And it's been tremendously valuable to those patients that have used it. Um, It saves them the travel time. It saves them the time away from the office. It saves them often the discomfort of being in a waiting room. It saves them the exposure to infectious disease in that waiting room. Uh, On every level, what we find is patients are more satisfied with these kinds of visits than than what they would typically speak about in terms of an in-person visit. Now, We also have a whole host of other services on the platform, and these vary based on um, who your partner is that you access the service with or what part of the country that you're accessing services from. But we have a variety of specialties of of care available on the platform. So things like mental health counselors, we have psychiatrists, we have dermatologists, endocrinologists. We really have a a very full-featured, almost what I'd call a multidisciplinary or multi-specialty clinic in the cloud. So it really is a full featured set of medical care services that are available within an application or on your browser.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I know, you know, again, thanks because you're helping our members every single day. Probably right now we're helping thousands across Canada uh, as well. So thank you for that. Um, so you mentioned how it helps uh, individuals, which, you know, there, there's no argument there at all, but how, do, how is your service also helping the system? Because as we know, the system is having issues right now. It's backlogged. I, I just saw the latest Health Canada stats of, you know, the wait times average 26 weeks now to see a specialist. So how, how is your, how is Maple or, and I'll say through AdvocA helping the healthcare system?
1: Yeah, I think the best way to Uh, speak about that and to understand that is to understand that when we think about the the difficulties in access to care in Canada, the the number one reason why um, we are short of, of access to care, the number one reason why we have the longest wait times in the developed world, which is something that I didn't mention, but we do have in Canada the longest wait times for primary care and specialty care of any country in the developed world there is a common misconception that those wait times are due to a shortage of doctors in our system. And and that is actually not the case. So when we look at our uh, workforce of doctors, in fact, only about 50% of Canadian doctors are actually working full year full time. And so I look at my personal and a lot of people will say, wow, I didn't know that my doctor friends work so hard. But when I look at my career, when I was working full time in the emergency room, Full-time in the emergency room is typically about 15 to 16 shifts a month. And then you're very burned out from the emergency room. So in my career where I was working full-time prior to starting Maple, I would do my 15 or 16 shifts and then I'd have 15 days off every single month. And, And that was great. I had tons of free time. And I would go for lunches with friends. I would go to the gym and that was all wonderful. But at a certain point in time, you tend to get bored when you're the only one of your friends group that isn't working on a Monday afternoon. And so there were many times where During the week, I would say, wouldn't it be great if there was a way for me to see a a couple of patients here when I'm bored, when I'm sitting, you know, waiting for my friends to finish work or waiting for my my lunch appointment? Um, Wouldn't it be great if I could provide a little bit of care? But that system that existed before we started Maple did not allow us to do that. And that was the case not only for me, but for many doctors across the country that were working under capacity for a variety of reasons. So think about that physicians that are on parental leave. They've just had a baby and they're working half time. Um, there are physicians that might be temporarily out of the country because they're on a sabbatical. There, there are many, many examples of this. There were many physicians that closed their offices for the summer because they go up to the cottage for the summer and none of them are able to provide any care. And this is why when you add all of that up, there's half the doctors in the country that are not working fully or full time. So adding a system like Maple what we allow all of those doctors to do is actually to use more of that free time. Now we're not gonna get them to 100% capacity, but we're gonna get them a lot closer to 100% capacity than they were before. And so what we're seeing is we're not taking doctor capacity out of the system. All of the doctors that work on Maple have continued to work in their clinics and their emergency rooms and their hospitals, but now they're providing all this extra care out into the community that previously just wouldn't have existed. And every single one of those patients that gets seen by a Maple doctor is now not going to have to go to the emergency room. They're not going to have to go to the walk-in clinic, which means the wait is shorter for those patients that really do have to go to the hospital, that really do have to go to the walk-in clinic. And when we think about what's the optimal way for our system to function, we want to save those precious resources, those in-person clinics, those in-person hospital resources. We wanna save those for the sickest patients, the ones who really need to be there. And we wanna treat all of those other patients that don't need to be there in the way that's the most efficient way possible which usually means treating them remotely and virtually
0: yeah no i would totally agree yeah so i mean i just think of the times over my life that our family or us have been an emergency i mean when you really need emergency you need to be quick and efficient and you know not a six hour wait but a you know maybe 20 minute or 10 minute wait um, and often it gets clogged up because people are there just because they just need a prescription or they need a refill or they just maybe had a small cut or that type of thing, right? So, um, yeah, so, I mean, I agree. I think what what you've created, uh, the virtual health space in particular, uh, is is helping our system and, and long-term will help our system to to do what it should be doing, and that's treating people that really need it, right, when they need it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think the the key hallmark of a sustainable healthcare system is the right level of care for the right patient. And virtual care is not for everybody. There are some people that have an appendicitis or they, you know, they're having a heart attack. Virtual care is not the place for them. Yeah. Um, But there are so many other things that are right for virtual care that they should be seeing a doctor virtually and they shouldn't be in the emergency room ahead of that person having the heart attack.
0: Yeah. So out of, uh, you probably, um, not sure if you know the stats or not, but what would be the percentage of people that, let's say you get, you know, whatever, a thousand calls a day or whatever the number is, how many can, uh, does will your service through Advocate actually help? Like, is it 70%, 60%, 80%?
1: Yeah, so people are self-selecting to begin with. So just to be clear, a lot of people coming into the application, they they recognize whether or not they have an issue that can be dealt with virtually. So there's a lot of people for whom you know they're having chest pain and they say, I'm not going to come onto the virtual care app because I know I need to call 911 for my chest pain, or um, you know I just sliced the tip of my finger off and obviously you know that's probably not a virtual care visit. So there is a little bit of self-selection that's happening up front. Although I I have seen a couple of patients on Maple that did actually slice the tip of their finger off and still came on. So, <laughs> so you know, there, there are some interesting things that are happening. But, but what I will say is that of those patients that are choosing to come on and choosing to submit a visit request, we're typically able to help about 80 to 90% of those patients and, and fully resolve their issue and get them to a place where they don't need to see a doctor in person. So it is very effective. And if you compare that to the literature that's out there, and there's been a lot of research that's been done on this topic as to what proportion of medical visits can be seen and dealt with virtually, the estimates out in the medical literature range between about 50 to 70% of all medical issues can be addressed virtually. So we're we're seeing numbers that are pretty close, maybe a little bit better than that.
0: Yeah, as you say, because people are self select a lot of people are saying, okay, this isn't appropriate for a virtual visit, right? So, Exactly. Yeah, no, that's excellent. So let, uh, we've talked about your growth and you've had some significant growth. Uh, I believe you're in the neighborhood of, uh, of helping over 3 million Canadians right now, which is a significant number, right? It's approximately 10% of the population across Canada. Um, where do you see it going in the future? Where's What are you projecting?
1: Yeah, well, well, we see a, a lot of growth uh, to come still in Canada. Um, you know, we're, we're obviously around 10% of the Canadian population, which is a huge milestone. Um, there's still the other 90% of the population that we would love to be able to help. And, and we're going to keep working towards that. We, we see a lot of exciting opportunities ahead of us uh, to partner with individual Canadians and organizations across the country. Um, there are many opportunities also that excite us in terms of, the kinds of care that we provide. So it isn't just getting bigger, it's actually getting get better, getting smarter. So right now when I look at the care that we provide, right now we're very good at what I would call reactive care. So you as a patient, you come on board, you sign into the platform, you recognize something is wrong. You've got a sore throat today, you've got a you know urinary problem, uh, you've got a stomach upset, whatever it is that brings you on, you've recognized there's an issue. And then our doctors respond to that and they give you some help for that. But what we're not good at doing is and i would say maybe not that we're not going to do it we're just not doing it yet what we're not doing yet is how do we actually keep you healthy between visits so how do we make sure that you have fewer of those sicknesses that we can prevent your heart disease from developing your diabetes from developing all of these other things that you're at risk for over the course of your life and not only that between medical visits so if you see our doctor and you're diagnosed with a urinary tract infection Uh, between that visit and your next one how do we make sure you stay healthy and you get better and, and all the things you should be doing between visits are taken care of so what I what I think about the platform of where we're going it becomes much more so not just about reactive care which is what we do now but proactive care so what are all the things that we can say are you taking the very best care of yourself, of your health? Are you doing all the right screening tests that you need to do? Are you eating the right foods? Do you have the right levels of activity? Are you screening your own self in terms of self exams and other things that you should be doing? And are you doing all these things with the right frequency for your age and risk factors? So all of these things are things that we're thinking about. I think the platform is going to get really, really good, not just at fixing problems, but actually preventing problems. And I'm really excited for that. And then finally, I think that there's a massive opportunity for us to get out of Canada Um, as much as, I think the Canadian healthcare system is challenged. I think we have some of the best minds in healthcare around the world. And I think there's a huge opportunity for us to take what we've built, this amazing platform that has done such a great job of treating millions of people and start to take our learnings to other markets around the globe and really, you know, take us from this 38 million person market here in Canada to the global market of billions of people. And that's what we're excited to get to over the next few years.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Good. You're not resting on your laurels, that's for sure.
1: No, that is, that is for sure. There's no rest for us over here.
0: Yeah, perfect. Where do you um, where do you see the future of healthcare in Canada? What do you what do you see as let's say 10 years out? What do you see? Is it private? Is it public? Is it hybrid? Is it, you know, obviously virtual is gonna play a, a big part in
1: that. Yeah, I, there's a lot of open questions. I, I think virtual is going to play a big part in whether it's public or private. I, I think there's a lot of pressure on the Canadian healthcare system. If you look at the cost of providing healthcare to the population um, versus the size of growth of our GDP, what, we'll, what you'll see is that our, the rate of increase in our expenditures on healthcare vastly outpaces the rate of GDP growth in the country. So we're having more and more and more of our economy dedicated to healthcare provision every single year. And that's only going to get worse because our population is aging. If you look at the demographics of our population, there's fewer and fewer young people and more and more old people. And as we know, it gets more expensive to take care of people. And so the the problem that we face is that we already have a healthcare system that is cracking at the seams. Um, Federal transfers for healthcare to the provinces are are historically low on a a per capita basis and, and in terms of in relation to what the expenses are that the provinces are being asked to deal with. And so what you're starting to see is, within Canada is a little bit of a fracturing of the Canada Health Act and you've seen it a little bit in Quebec and you may start to see it in other provinces, I know Alberta is starting to play with this as well where, where when we look at the provisions of the Canada Health Act, which is this act that says that all physician care must be publicly provided and publicly paid for. The only consequence to a province if they say we're actually going to not abide by that is that they no longer get their federal health transfer but the problem that we're seeing in Canada is that the federal health transfers are becoming so small of a component of a province's overall health expenditures that that threat is no longer much of a big one to the provinces anymore and more and more provinces are starting to say, should we begin to experiment with private healthcare because there really isn't much of an incentive for us to stick with this public only healthcare system. so really, I think um, we are reaching a point where where the strain on our healthcare system is is going to be something that our healthcare systems can't cope with much longer. I mean, I look at the hospitals that I work with, and they're not able to take much more beyond what they're already dealing with. And so, I think it's just a matter of time as to whether or not governments across the country start exploring other alternative models of healthcare in terms of how we provide care versus what we've already done. Or do we allow the system to splinter further and, and levels of care to go down further? But I think at some point in time there is going to be a dramatic shift because the system can't just go on with business as usual for much longer. No, <laughs> but, it yeah, it's
0: yeah. it's overwhelmed. As I said, it's overburdened. Uh, population keeps increasing, and and the healthcare system can't, as it is today, can't keep up with it.
1: No in instances. No. Yeah, no, it, it's going to need to change in one direction or another.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, when we started off, we talked about the partnership between AdvocA and Maple. Um, can you just comment on that and how you see us? We obviously have a lot of our, uh, members that are listening to this podcast, but how do you see that partnership, uh, yeah. you know, a integrating today and B, uh, growing in the future together to help more Canadians?
1: Yeah, it, well, first of all, Advocate, I, I have to congratulate on an amazing service. Um, I hear nothing but great things about the quality of service. I think the nursing services provided to the members are fantastic and really a great value add. And I think there's two directions uh, in terms of uh, what we're doing with this partnership right now and what we can do in the future. So I think right now, um, our services, which are the general practitioner on demand services are available to Advocate members across uh, your, your group. So Uh, Any of your members where they're speaking to a nurse, uh, where they're getting navigational help, where it becomes apparent that the need that they have is a medical need that requires seeing a doctor, they can easily get the advice to come on over to our platform, see one of our general practitioners and get their need uh, dealt with. And, you know, the nurses are amazing, but there are going to be things that you just need to be seeing a doctor for. And I think we really add that value. And I think in the other direction, I think there are, you know, especially when I speak about from our membership side, Um, There are going to be times where when I think about that proactive care model, that between-visit care model, I think there's really a great role for us to be more integrated with services like what you provide so that our members at Maple, between visits, before visits, etc., can benefit from potentially some of the navigational elements that your nurses provide, and I'd love to start exploring that for the members as well.
0: Yeah, excellent. We're excited about that as well, and and that's why we were excited to to have you as a partner. I think there's a lot of opportunity there for, for our members, so pleased to hear that. Um, in terms of, uh, uh your own, you, you mentioned earlier, Brett, about you take care of your own health and you go to the gym and that type of thing. So, uh, as you know, I, uh, I published a book last year, uh, called it's never too late to be healthy. And I would just like to put you on the spot and ask you a few questions about your own health and things. Uh, our listeners are always interested to see, you know, what are, what are our partners or in your case, what are our docs doing or in terms of their own health? So, um, so first of all, to start off with, uh, exercise, what do you, you know, do you have a daily routine? Are you on it? What do you do? Any, any nuggets you can give our listeners?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say I'm certainly not, not, you know, the ultimate guru in terms of, of staying healthy, um, and probably not the ultimate role model, but, but for me, I think the, the number one thing that I do, uh, and that I would recommend anybody does to maintain health is really, um, Maintaining activity levels and particularly when I talk about activity levels it's walking regularly so walking I think on a regular basis is probably one of the easiest things that anybody can do. That has dramatic effect on all parts of your health so it's been shown that if you walk regularly and by regularly it's usually a 30 minute walk every day if you can uh, makes tremendous differences to not only your physical health but your mental health as well and so. I make a point on any given day that I will try to get out of the house, I will take that 30 minute walk I watch my step counts every day and make sure that they're never super low but especially those of us that are sitting in a desk chair all day long. It's very easy for you to be inactive for you to have that sort of sub 2000 or sub 1000 step count, which is certainly what I would call sedentary and not good for you so. Walking regularly um, will reduce your chance of things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, even cognitive effects can be improved at that, and your moods are incredibly elevated. So that would be huge, number one. And the more brisk you can make that walk, the more beneficial it will be. So that would be one. Two, I I am generally a a fan of, of staying away from processed foods in my diet. So I by no means, uh, you know, religiously watch what I eat, but most of what I eat is generally healthy sourced ingredients. The so things that are either made in my own kitchen or made in someone else's kitchen, but it's things, you know, and I'm, and I don't religiously avoid cardiovascular or not cardiovascular. I don't religiously avoid carbohydrates because a lot of people are very anti-carbs. I think carbs are fine, but in moderation. But when I think about the foods that I have, I have a lot of salads, a lot of sandwiches, a lot of fresh meats. Uh, I'm big on protein. So, you know, proteins are actually quite healthy. So beef, chicken, fish, et cetera, are all good for you. But what I'm really avoiding is all that junk that you see in the supermarket. So when you see that the bags of potato chips and the chocolate bars and, and the packaged desserts and all of those things, those are all made with many, many ingredients that you would never use in your kitchen and you would never want to be putting into yourself. So I, I typically stay away from most of those. And I find that that actually makes it very easy to maintain a healthy weight without ever going overboard. And then finally, I think the other thing that's really uh, important uh, to note is just alcohol consumption, because I think that that's something that a lot of people have have struggled with during the pandemic And I think moderating alcohol consumption is a critical thing to stay healthy, Um, you know, not only for your dietary health, because uh, there's a lot of empty calories in in alcohol. I've seen tons of people drink way too much and get fat as a result of drinking. Um, But also it has profoundly negative effects in terms of uh, the risk of cancer that you can develop over the course of your life, the risk of damage to your liver and the negative cognitive effects it can have on your brain. So uh, and, and then finally, I would also say it has very negative effects, both on mood and on sleep, which are things that everybody prizes. So if you can moderate alcohol consumption, and I keep that very low, um, that makes a big difference as well. And I could actually talk about this for a while, but these are sort of my key basics that I follow in my life. And it seems to work well for me.
0: And you know what? Those are those are great, great advice. I mean, as I'm sure you've read um, Dan Bootner's work on the blue zones. I mean, people that are the longest living people in the world, centurions, that live, you know, the five places in the world. And he studied their habits, and it's very similar to what you said. I mean, number one, they move every day, right? They aren't on a treadmill, they aren't on an elliptical, they aren't in a gym. They're just moving. And I've been to actually one of those blue zones, Sardinia, um, on when I was competing in a race, and they and you see it. I mean, they're walking these hills and villages, and they're over a hundred years old, and they're just moving every day, right? Which is And the other thing I'll use Sardinia as an example are the blue zones. They are eating, they don't eat processed foods. They don't eat, I mean, today they likely are, but I, I, you know, with the the influx of that, I'll say around the world. But uh, traditionally they just, you know, it was was food off their farm, it was homegrown, it was they had a cow out in the field or whatever. Um, So non processed uh, foods. Um, and let me ask you about sleep because sleep is a big one as well. And, uh, when I do, when I write a health blog on sleep by far and away, they're, they're my most read blogs. Uh, so I'd like your opinion on what you do and the importance of sleep as well.
1: Yeah. Sleep is one of those tricky ones. And, and the reason why it's a tricky one is it is almost universally true that as people get older, the quality of sleep declines, um, Older people typically sleep fewer hours, they typically feel less rested after sleep. And, and that is just one of those n- not well understood parts of human physiology. It, you know, and, and sleep overall is not understood very well at all. If you ask any medical doctor, why do we even sleep? We can't even answer that question. Nobody even understands why as animals we need to sleep. Um, this causes a great deal of consternation, I think, for a lot of people, because I think a lot of us fondly remember our teenage years and maybe even in our early 20s when we could sleep till noon on any given day and wake up feeling pretty well rested and all, and, and that's a distant memory for most of us. And for me, um, in my life, you, you know, I was always one of those people when I was younger, I could sleep in easily, even until I hit the age of 30. If I had a day where I wasn't working, I could sleep till 11 or 12, no problem. And and now, in my life, um, I'm very, very lucky if I can sleep till 7 a.m. And most days I'm up earlier than that. And and that's just something that I think is a pretty common change for a lot of people. So what you really want to do, given that as you get older, you're probably not going to sleep in. And particularly if you have children or other obligations that even if you could sleep in, those would stop you from being able to sleep in. You want to make sure that you're maximizing the time that you have to sleep and maximizing the quality of that sleep. So there's a few things you can do for that. So one make sure you go to bed earlier, Uh, you know, late nights with an early wake up um, are are not going to do you very much good Two consistency of when you go to bed. So make sure to go to bed the same time every day, because your body learns very well. When is the time it should fall asleep. And if you're doing a different bedtime every single day, your body just doesn't know. And that leads to you lying in bed with racing thoughts and not falling asleep and a lot of stress over falling asleep, which could lead to you not sleeping the next day Um, quality of sleep is really important. So make sure that your bedroom is dark, make sure it's cool. Uh, make sure that it's well noise protected if possible. If you can't protect from noise, have some some white noise in the background that can actually filter out some of the noise that could be disturbing your sleep. And two other big things, alcohol helps you to fall asleep. It is terrible for staying asleep. So as I said, moderate alcohol consumption. The more you have, the less likely you are to have a restful sleep. And then one final thing, don't drink a lot of water before bedtime. So one of the single greatest causes of nighttime waking is people feeling like they have to go to the washroom. If you've got a lot of water that you drank in the evening, your chance of, hap- of that happening to you is really, really significant. Yeah, <clears throat> all
0: all amazing tips, and <clears throat> I know myself. Like I use a Whoop, and I've got an Aura ring, and I measure uh, my quality of sleep and length of sleep. And what uh, to your point, what it showed me very early on was that if I went to bed at eleven and woke up at seven, I thought I was getting eight hours sleep. I'm I'm getting I generally get an hour less than I'm in bed. So I've now you know we go to bed at nine thirty. You know, read a bit lights out at 10 and because I need that extra hour to make sure that I'm actually fulfilling my sleep uh, that I need so um, and, and quality of sleep as well so so great tips there. Um, and the last thing uh, just before we uh, we uh, close here is how about from a, a mindfulness standpoint or stress management do you do, you know, do you do any meditating deep breathing, what do you do to kind of I'll say slow your mind down and, and uh, look after your stress levels.
1: Yeah, so I think this is going to be different for everybody. I think what gives people peace in their head is, is just very different person to person. Um, for me, there's a couple things that really help. So physical activity is incredibly helpful to, to moderate stress. Um, I, I'm the kind of person that if I get out and I'm out for a run or I'm out for a bike ride, the minute I'm exercising vigorously, I, I don't remember the stress. It tends to disappear. So, so that's really, really helpful for me um meditation i've i've never been a, a very good meditator but i've been somebody who has read up on some of the principles of meditation and and some of the principles are all about just finding peace in where you're at now because i think one of the biggest difficulties in terms of stress is that The things that we're stressed about, and this is an interesting principle, the things that we're worried about happening are never happening right now. They're things we worry might happen in the future. And so some of the principles of meditation that I've read up on are whenever you're getting really stressed to focus on your exact situation right now to say, yes, I'm worried this might happen in the future, that might happen in the future. But right now I'm sitting in a comfortable chair. I'm eating well, you know. I've got a comfortable home around me. I've got people that love me and to actually say, okay, what, is there anything in my life right now that is actually stressful? And the answer almost always is no. All, all, almost all of the time stresses that people have are about some future possibility, not about anything that's happening right now. And most of the time, the things that people stress might happen don't come to pass and most of the time actually when bad things do happen you have no anticipation they will come out of the blue and, and so if you can follow those kinds of principles and just in terms of the way that you think i find that to be very helpful Um, and then finally um, for me i have found that i'm a very good person in terms of my ability to turn off stress when i have something else that i find very stimulating that i'm interested in and for me that activity that really interests me and stimulates me and makes stress go away is reading so one of the first things I'll do if I'm feeling really stressed, if that run hasn't gotten it out of my system is I will pick up a good book and try to read for a bit. And I get very quickly lost in a book. And, and a lot of the time that really helps me to forget the stress of, of the day. But again, that's going to be different for different people, but find that activity for you. That is the thing that's very pleasurable and, and where your brain will focus. Cause our brains are not good at doing two things at once. So if you find something that your brain enjoys doing more than being stressed, your brain's going to stick on that. Yeah. No, great, great, great advice. Yeah. And, and you know what, I'm like you,
0: I'm, I'm not a meditator, but I try to live in the present as much as I can. And, and again, exercise is one of my outlets <clears> hundred percent. <throat> in fact, if I don't uh, exercise for a day or two, my wife Barb's kicking me out of the house and go, go for a run or go for a ride. Right. So <laughs> she, she feels the stress as well. <laughs> so Brett um, just in closing, I want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Uh, great history of maple. Uh, Congratulations on building an amazing, amazing business and congratulations really at the end of the day on helping so many Canadians and and with your vision uh, to grow worldwide uh, solve health issues, because at the end of the day what you're doing and I think what we're we're both built the same way is how can we help people live healthier, longer, happier lives right at the end of the day and if we can help them do that then we're fulfilling our personal missions as well. So thank you so much for that. And um, lastly, just want to say we're super looking forward to working with Maple as a partnership
1: uh, and helping more and more Canadians as we continue to grow. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here, and we're super excited to work with you and to keep helping your members.
0: Yeah, awesome. Okay, Brett, have a great afternoon. Thank you. You too. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For all of our listeners, I invite you to visit Advocahealth.com where you can easily become an advocate member to take advantage of some of the amazing services we offer. You can also access our latest blogs and listen to some of the best medical advice available on our podcast. Don't forget to grab a copy of my latest book, It's Never Too Late to Be Healthy, that is available to order through our website. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.